Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Charlotte Blank. She is the Chief Behavioral Officer at Merits. She is a self-professed professional nerd with a passion for performance, behavioral science, and the social brain. Hello, Charlotte. Hello, Michelle. Thanks for having me. I love this Chief Behavioral Officer. Are you keeping everybody in line over there? That, unfortunately, <laughs> that's not my my responsibility. No, but I was just thinking like... Behaviors. Corrections officer, yep. <laughs> everybody need to behave here at Merits. That's right. So tell me, what does that mean? What does that title mean? So for Merits, you know, it's such an interesting company. We're all about the science and art of people and potential, overseeing incentive reward travel experience research programs for almost half of the Fortune 100. We kind of do everything for everyone in a way, if okay. you're familiar with Merits. Um, but what's cool about that is the common thread, what they all have to do with something related to understanding, enabling, motivating human behavior. So really a a common understanding of what drives human behavior, performance, judgment, decision-making. The better we understand that, the better um, we can design and implement these programs. So Merits at its core is a people and performance company and stands to benefit from this greater understanding of behavioral science. So that's really my role to oversee our practice of research and external facing thought leadership Um, internal consulting, um, various ways that we develop our expertise in behavioral science. This sounds huge. This sounds like a whole heck of a lot. Like, I mean, what all is involved with that? You, t- I mean, I can't imagine the amount of research. And and who comes to you? Is it is are you doing this and then offering, or do companies come to you and say we got to figure out why people should buy our widget? Um, how about yes to all of the above? Okay. And so some the way I think about it and, and what makes it <clears throat> not even feel like work to me is it's just so aligned with my personal passion and purpose and what I love to read and do and talk about all the time. Um, really what I dream about doing and what I feel is my calling to, to help Merits lead this movement of applied behavioral science in the modern marketplace. Okay. Um, because behavioral science is a fascinating field. It's still somewhat nascent, uh, even in the academic um, space. There's new insights coming out every day from university settings and the idea of really applying it and testing and applying these insights in real world consequential scenarios that affect people's decision making in um, real world environments is still um, sort of new. So we have some examples from government and policy, um, thanks to the institution of nudge units around the world, but far fewer examples from business settings. Um, for, For some reason, we don't have as many published examples of carefully designed randomized control controlled trials that are conducted in workplace settings. And it's a really important area to start thinking like a scientist um, as we think about the amount of time that we spend at work as human beings and what we stand to gain as as leaders, as business leaders, by taking a more scientific approach to motivating, incentivizing, um, creating cultures and programs that unleash the potential of our workforce. So, so that being said... Um, that's kind of my passion, and what I'm trying to do is launch this movement and bring behavior, bring business leaders into this movement of behavioral science. And the way to do that um, involves a lot of action and hands-on work in terms of designing experiments and and designing those um, 
the the and, and analyzing those results. A lot of that work we do in partnership with the academic world. So okay. we have an extensive network of scholars um, at institutions across the world who work with us to test these insights, um, and in an effort to publish those findings, um, could be anonymously or uh, in partnership with our clients and using their name. But the idea is that. We're uncovering new insights with them together. So a lot of the research that we do hands-on um, is in partnership with these academics across the country, which really helps with um, you, what you sensed did, that it could be a you know an endless research roadmap. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, so this sort of network or platform model really helps with that. Um, but the other side of the coin, I think, in launching this movement is sort of building the the building the party in the first place and really um, celebrating and evangelizing and showcasing how exciting and interesting and funny and weird and wonderful. As you said, there's just so much, it's just such a fascinating thing to be a part of. So I think a lot of my job is being a quote unquote salesperson of science and just getting clients and partner organizations engaged and interested in, in doing these experiments with us. So a big part of that is, um, is the conversation that we put out there through peoplescience.com and supporting social channels. So if you look for People Science, that's where we host popular conversation um, and community around behavioral insights in the modern marketplace. And that's meant to felt it's meant to feel quite uh, engaging and fun, sort of like a dinner party with your most interesting friends, oh, um, cool. you know, versus sort of a, a, a primarily academic sort of reference site. So I, I'm going to take you back just a little bit. What is a nudge unit? I've never heard this. <clears throat> so the, the term nudge was popularized by a best-selling book by Richard Thaler, who just won the Nobel Prize in 2017 for okay. his role in sort of co-founding the entire field of behavioral economics. So he's a really established behavioral economist at the University of Chicago. His co-author is Cass Sunstein, um, also a preeminent scholar, um, lawyer and, and uh, scholar. So the two of them wrote this book, Nudge, which became this sort of surprise phenomenal best-selling hit which started to bridge this um this gap between you know thinking like a scientist and applying that to real world situations and the concept of a nudge is saying that there's um, a more effective way to change behavior than simply providing someone more information or forcing someone to do something or even incentivizing them paying them to do something yeah the most effective way to um, change behavior could be to quote unquote nudge them with by um, making subtle changes to their environment um, using concepts like choice architecture um, and employing term um, ideas that we can talk about um, sort of insights from behavioral science that we would test and apply to the design of programs that help people almost sort of tumble into making the right decision, um, you know, working with their cognitive biases instead of against them. Okay. Um, so that's the, the term nudge means to sort of help uh, to nudge behavior and that... Um, the, the aftermath of that book led to the creation of several government institutions called nudge units, um, one in the Obama administration led by Cass Sunstein, another that Thaler advised in the UK, um, and several smaller ones around the globe in cities and municipalities and governments um, that all their, their role was to start to uh, bring this field of applied behavioral science to the real world through um, designing simple experiments, testing interventions against control groups, and measuring what really works to change behavior, and then implementing those changes in programs to help people do things like pay their taxes on time, use less energy, um, exercise more, you name it, all kinds of social good that um, has been improved through the implementation of this nudge approach um, in a very cost-effective way. 
Wow. I am glad I asked. That's <laughs> fascinating. And and thank you, because I was thinking, I better not let this one go. What's a nudging? Everybody should know this. So give us a real world example of something you've done that would like help us to really solidify in our head what this does mean. Yeah, here's a, a good example. We're excited about that. Um, we're just starting to publicize results as an experiment we ran in partnership with a few academics in our network, some right here in our backyard at Washington University. That's Rachel Gershon and Cindy Kreider and their uh, their colleague, Leslie John, who's at Harvard Business School. And these particular scholars are interested in the idea of pro-social behavior in the marketplace. So pro-social is a term that could also be thought of as just simply being generous. The, the idea of giving to others when it might make more rational sense to keep something for yourself, um, to maximize your own utility. But we know as humans, as a social species, that it feels good to give. Right. Um, but this new research suggests that there, that the act of giving might actually be surprisingly motivational. So we've seen there's some other interesting research that shows this in context of um, sales performance when uh, when employees were given um, cash bonuses to spend on others on their team, they actually performed better in subsequent quarters. That oh, was a, a different paper by um, I love it. Yeah, by another partner, Lara Acknan. Um, but these researchers that um, of this this paper I was about to to share was we looked at this idea in context of consumer referral programs, which is a really common way that brands um, try to to activate um, their existing customer base and try to get new customers um, by encouraging them to share referrals. And typically those might come with some sort of incentive, um, sort of a thank you gift you could think of that typically goes to the original customer as a thank you for bringing in a new one. But what these researchers did um, and what we found that uh, in these field experiments was that actually these referral programs might be more effective if they're structured the opposite way so that the the incentive, the the actual reward gift, goes to the new customer who's been referred. Okay. So um, they had some lab ev evidence to suggest that this would be the case. Um, so we tried that with some of our own partners. Um, one is a local startup called Gift a Meal. Um, oh, yeah. You familiar? I had them on here. Oh, they were, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, I well, did. you know, Jacob, the uh, CMO of Gift a Meal, is actually a member of our team, the Behavioral Science and okay. Innovation Group at Merits. So a lot of shared connections there and a fabulous startup, a really brilliant. Right idea. Um, gift a meal essentially uh, enables people to um, give. It's also a giving related uh, concept that um, is a, a meal sharing app so that you go to a restaurant who participates in this program. And if you take a picture of your meal and share it, then you trigger a donation to a local food bank. Right. Um, and that serves as both a marketing platform for those participating organizations, as well as a, an opportunity for social good um, and something that's that's good for consumers to participate in. So that was one company with whom we partnered. Um, another company, uh, Merit's client, a Canadian video game subscription subscription service called Game Access. Um, and they typically run um, incentive-based referral programs that might be structured along the lines of um, refer a friend and you get a free month of service. Right. So in both cases, what right. we did was run a controlled experiment where we randomized groups of customers into different treatments and had some remain in a control group where they would receive that quote-unquote um, selfish uh, referral structure and would they would get to keep that uh, free month 
or a different bonus in Gift Emil's case, um, or versus uh, we compared them to the treatment group of um, a pro-social incentive whereby they were able to give their new friend the gift of the free month. So refer a friend and give them a free month. Um, and we found something like a threefold um, increase in conversion really? in, that, in that generous um, condition. So lots more interesting research to come of that, but a really great example of a cost-effective way to experiment and try a new idea and in this case, found us, us, in my opinion, surprisingly large effect. I love it. Well, and also, this this makes me feel happy. I like the effect that it's had. This is a yeah. good sign. We're going to take a quick break, and we will be right back. And we are back with Charlotte Blank. So this is fascinating to me. And you know, it's okay. So just yesterday, this came up to me. Um, I am part of a conference, and you know, part of that being in that conference, they were asking us that you know, like, could you guys all try to sell ten tickets? I'm like, oh, you know, like that. You know, hi, come see me talk. Here, <laughs> here, you got to buy this ticket, right? And as we we, but we all were admitting that we have a hard time with that, but. If I were selling that ticket on behalf of that person over there, mm-hmm. who I love and adore, and I really do want everybody to hear them, it would be so much easier. And it was, I'm like, that is so true. Like, I can do that. I can sell something on behalf of my friend because they're awesome, and I want people to come to them, and I know how great they are, and I want everybody else to know how great they are, but I can't do it for myself. So this makes complete sense that we're doing this. That's a really interesting um, and common dilemma, honestly, especially for women. Um, this this was t- something topical that we were, were talking about this week in that we were approached by an academic partner who studies the idea of self-promotion and when and for whom and in what cases does it feel comfortable and appropriate to share your successes right. and say, I achieved this and I'm proud of it. Um, and when does it feel inappropriate to do so? And how do others perceive that? Do the, when do they perceive it as bragging or as totally appropriate you know, right. confidence? And there are tremendous differences in genders um, and in other different uh, types of social classifications and groups. And this is a really interesting topic for us in terms of our employee recognition business. So Merit's actually, through Culture Next, creates these employee engagement programs that are largely grounded in the idea of recognition and um, showcasing and calling out positive behaviors and good work that's been done. Right. And it really is making us think about what um, what we might we be missing there. You know, what behaviors just aren't surfaced because some people are likely to keep them private and not share. Right. So how could we potentially work with these researchers and otherwise implement behavioral design to encourage more self-promotion in a way that uh, creates a more healthy well, place for sharing. It doesn't feel icky. Yeah. You know, my scientific term for that would be icky. icky. Is, <laughs> I, use, I use creepy a lot. Creepy is a, is a common one for another study we've But done. it does feel, and, and, and I'm terrible. I mean, like, I am a big ham. I'll just be out there and do anything. But as far as, like, promoting myself, it really is difficult for me. And but I'll promote anybody else. And and so with what I do for my business is social media. So I talk to my clients a lot about having your cheerleaders. 
Who are your cheerleaders that are willing to talk about you? Because so many of them are like, I don't, that sounds so braggy. You're like, <laughs> we just won this humongous award. Should we talk about it? You know, where yeah. I'm saying, yes, you should. Now, me as your social media person, I can talk it up because I'm so proud of you that you won this award. But they feel icky saying that they won it. And, you know, I'm like, well, you know, we just, there's a way to present it where it won't feel like you're being all braggy because you're really not. But then who are your cheerleaders? Who are the people that are willing to share this and talk it up on your behalf to get the word out, right? That's one of the great things about social media. Right. So, I, I mean, this just, this makes me feel happy that that's how people think. Yeah, you know? absolutely. So tell us more. I mean, this is fascinating. What what other fascinating things would you just like other to share cool today, stuff? Charlotte? Yeah, yes. share. Got, I want to know. We call them nuggets. <laughs> yeah, we just got tons of cool nuggets. Um, another cool study that um, actually got a lot of press this year was by um, Leslie John, who I just mentioned at Harvard Business School, and her colleagues Kate Baraz and Tammy Kim. They are studying the idea of creepiness as it relates to um, advertising and the way your data is used online. Uh-huh. So they're very, you know, which is such a topical, timely issue. And they um, have done tons of fascinating research on the idea of privacy and transparency in an age of big data. When right. consumers are somewhat paradoxically uh, appreciative of receiving customized, relevant, targeted information, you know, exactly. if it's helpful and relevant. Um, but at the same time, it can be creepy or icky to know right. how that how that happens and exactly. how my data is being used. to. to and so these particular academics um, have a lot of expertise and curiosity in the dimensions of that. So just one strain of that I think is really interesting. They look at this classic psychological um, concept called um, information flows. And these are kind of like social norms or rules of thumb about how it's okay to share information with others. And so some classic rules of thumb might be don't talk about someone behind their back. Right. You know, tell them to their face. Or don't assume something about someone. Don't judge a book by its cover. Right. Take only the direct information. So these are kind of like things your mom teaches you when you're a kid. And that's for a reason. They sort of stand the test of time. So it makes sense that some of these social norms would translate into the digital world and apply to the way our data is handled. So right. that was the question that Leslie and her colleagues have been looking into. And they've done some really cool lab research to suggest that this is true. So we then followed up with field research by doing some um, A-B tests or, or randomized controlled trials on our reward sphere platform with a couple different clients on RewardSphere, which basically powers the um, reward websites that you experience when you're turning points into experiences or points into merchandise. When you're going to redeem your points, you'd experience that as uh, something like an e-commerce site that's branded by the client. Um, But Merits might be powering that. So as an e-commerce site, it offers the capability to uh, recommend relevant items. So if we see that you're looking at you know, a baby stroller, we might say recommended baby backpack thing. Right, gotcha. So we tested this idea uh, with the academics um, to see if these information flows apply here and basically ran these simple experiments that controlled, um, that had the control condition simply say recommended as the text above the box, but the treatment group would try um, one of these so these information flows. So it would add some transparency there. And uh, in one case, we said, instead of just recommended, we said recommended based on your clicks on our site. Right. And found that in that case, by being transparent about an acceptable information flow, we had an uptick of 38% redemption. Interesting. And, and all the way through the funnel of 
clicks, time spent, redemption, everything was essentially improved by adding that element of transparency. And I think it's important to uh, be clear that transparency in any case probably isn't great. If we were saying, you know, uh, we're we're recommending this based on spying on your emails, that might not... <laughs> yeah, that doesn't feel good. Right. But <laughs> no. I think, you know, just as you had a feel-good feeling about the pro-social example, in this case, I think it's, um, it's a good sign that there is an opportunity for a win-win-win. Because right. in this case, uh, we were simply making clear and transparent um, that we were following the rules. And we yeah. were using your data in a respectable way and did that to offer you something relevant that you redeemed for. Um, so in this case, everybody sort of benefited. So there is kind of hope for the future that um, if people feel that they have a sense of control and awareness of how their data is being used, um, that we yeah. might still be able to leverage this incredibly effective uh, technique of targeted advertising. And I think, I mean, it does bring a value, you know, and it was interesting. Um, quite a few years ago, I had done a presentation about branding and, and marketing. And it, the the older people in the room did not like the whole remarketing thing. They, you know, I called it the shoes that follow you around the internet. So you look at a pair of shoes and then you go to the next site and there they are again and there they are again. Now, that doesn't bother me to me. I'm like, oh, good. I know Same. where they're at. So that I know. If I want to I'm, buy them, I'm I know so where they're on at. The right? You know, the spectrum <laughs> but it seemed, and I'm an older person, but I kind of have like that millennial mindset in many ways. So the older people were like, that was creepy. I don't like that. I don't like that they know that I, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Whereas the younger people in the room were thinking, their thought was, well, I expect that. Don't show me stuff I don't need. Don't th- show me things I'm not interested in. I want you to show me stuff that I'm interested in. So it's it's going to take it. But I like the fact of the the transparency in that. Here's why. It's like Netflix does it, right? They're mm-hmm. like, recommended these movies because you watched blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, like you watched that mesh, so we think you might like all of these as well. Right. That tells me, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I watched that documentary, now they think th- I might like these documentaries. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate the transparency. You guys are doing good work, Charlotte. It's so interesting. I love it. <laughs> well, we're going to take another break, and we, we will be right back with Charlotte Blake. Okay, so we're back with Charlotte Blank. I have questions for you. The first one is just totally goofy, but I just, I have to tell you, I was on LinkedIn and I looked at you and I'm like, oh my gosh, what a super cute, awesome pic. Who took this picture of you? (laughs) Oh, that's funny. Um, That pic, that was a professional uh, photo session that they had at Merit. So um, yeah, it was just a really good photographer, I guess. But I do remember now that you ask, um, he was kind of engaging us in conversation to make, you know, our faces seem natural and like we were laughing and stuff. And it turned out we had so much in common. He had a daughter in college who was also studying neuroscience, which I had. Okay. Um, And I feel like she might have even been at Vanderbilt and I had gone to Emory and there were just a whole whole bunch of uh, connections in common. Oh, cool. But it was was such a a great pick. I mean, you could just tell it was like one of those things where somebody knew what they were doing. Well, thank you. (laughs) Um, All right. So I read this and when I was just doing my, my... stalking of Charlotte Blanks understand you. <laughs> Thank God for the what, internet. What is delighting without asking? Oh, yeah. Delighting without asking. That's an interesting concept, I think, that, again, just speaks to a core principle of behavioral science, which is that 
the vast majority of the influences on our judgment and decision-making occur beneath the layer of conscious awareness. So when you ask someone um, what they think of something or what they expect that they will do in the future, Mm -hmm. even with the best of intentions, we don't always have access to that information. Right. That's locked in within our non-conscious um, decision-making right. uh, capabilities. So so that's just sort of a, a core component of, I guess, like all behavioral science research. A popular way to think of it is um, Daniel Kahneman popularized this in Thinking Fast and Slow, the idea of two concurrent streams of thought, system one thinking and system two thinking. Okay. You know, so we have the sensation of, um, what it feels like when it feels like you're thinking about something, like I'm solving a math problem, I'm making a hard choice, I'm weighing rational factors. You know, that's one stream of thought. But all the while, your brain is just hard at work making these automatic, habitual, don't even think about it, rapid fire decisions. Otherwise, you'd spend, it would take you two weeks to figure out how to tie your shoes and make breakfast <laughs> right. every morning, right? So, so it's a wonderful thing. It's an example of how efficient our brains are um, and how they've freed us up to solve some of, you know, life's greatest challenges, but they also rely on a series of inherited, ingrained um, shortcuts, essentially, otherwise known as um, cognitive biases or heuristics. They're essentially mental shortcuts that help us um, make sense of things on an automatic basis. Yeah, yeah. So that's essentially the the field of behavioral science is better understanding those biases and knowing how to sort of predictably expect and and design for those. So when I say um, delighting without asking, I mean um, designing with um, behavioral biases in mind and the other ways that people make decisions um, without relying solely on asking them to tell tell you what what they would pick. So it's like you're studying them, like in a sense, like watching, that is really a cool thought because I think that like what are the greatest gifts? Are the gifts that people give you that they're like, well, I noticed that. Mm. I mean, so, you know, I was came around with Ted Sloan, who saw me constantly struggling with my phone every time I did. And then Ted's like, I noticed that you're like struggling with your phone when you do your life. Here. That is thoughtful. <laughs> you know, that was delightful. You know, right? that is delightful. And so, that's, and that's um, you know, gifts and rewards are essentially one and the same. You know, we're in right. the gift business in exactly. that, you know, to the extent that Merits is a, is a enormous provider of reward programs and a really common way to talk about it is in context of a gift. Because when you're um, offering a reward in a program, you want it to feel like a special treat right. that someone earned for discretionary effort, for going above and beyond, something that they'll, they'll remember the company for. So you don't want to just give them cash and let them figure it out and yeah. let them go spend it on gas. You want to give them a treat that, that that's going to matter sense to them. For, I love it. Awesome. Okay, this one is going to crack me up. Ready? <laughs> um, just like most of us, <laughs> you've explored the swim behavior effects of R121919 <laughs> infused into the hippocampus of swim low active and swim high active rats. Charlotte, what does that mean? Oh my gosh! Well, I'm not gonna. It's going bo- back. I'm not gonna bore your listeners <laughs> into with the details. Um, if anyone ever wants to have a I cocktail know, party conversation, I know about no, yeah. the swim low and swim high active rats. Yeah. So um, Michelle's referring to mm-hmm. my um, 
my senior year honors thesis at Emory um, when I studied neuroscience and behavioral biology, which was a really cool kind of interdisciplinary look at behavior. So we were taking classes from, you know, neuroscience and biology and psychology and anthropology and even some philosophy and religion, just every way you can think about these influences on behavior. Um, and so, I, like, as I can't say enough how, how much I love this stuff and always have. Um, so at Emory, um, I worked in a rat lab a, or a a behavioral neuroscience lab which worked with thousands of enormous rodents i was just telling i just <laughs> I, I, I have a picture of lab this. i was um, in a rat lab well they're cat they're cat sized rats we call them two handers oh, they're really big wow that is a big rat yeah so that um that particular experiment r121919 was a precursor to um an anti-anxiety medication. So we were, it was a stress-related study um, that basically involved, it was pretty time-intensive, but we I learned how to do um, brain surgery on rats and um, did some kind of, uh, I I won't belabor all the the horrors that I had to put those those little guys oh, through. Oh, no. I, I, I single-handedly murdered quite a few of them. But, oh, um, no. <laughs> but, uh, you know, all in the name of science. Gotcha. But what is the what, what's the swimming thing? So the swim test uh, is a measure of stress, and I and I guess you would say a measure of despair, sort of giving up. So okay. um, the rats, after we would um, put them to sleep, um, insert hip. Uh, what would you call it? Insert cannula, these little tubes directly okay. into their hipp hippocampus, let them heal for a couple weeks, um, infuse half of them with this drug, our told 1919, the other half with a placebo. Then you'd put them through this swim test and essentially measure how long they would swim and kind of fight for survival gotcha. um, or just sort of give up and float. So, oh. yeah, you're really making me look bad, Michelle. Sorry. So the, uh, we don't have to talk about it anymore. They did look pretty cute in their, uh, their little floaties. They had, we, we would put, strap these little, um, styrofoam bubbles on their backs like it looked Aww. like it looked like a jet pack with a vest and a and a floaty bubble like you oh, put a five-year-old kid in in the end um I mean honestly it taught me a lot more um just personal lessons of you know how to see through a some an experiment that was way over my head and I thought was far too technical and way too far on the hard sciences side. You know, at the time it was all about neuromarketing and sexy fMRI studies. And I was like, I don't want to work with rats. But this was, I learned so many complex techniques. And also, um, weirdly, what I remember most too is I am not really an animal person. And I had a lot of, um, I wanted to be as a kid. I had a lot of hamsters growing up right? and I couldn't bring myself to pick them up. I would have to put on like little winter gloves to like pick up the oh, hamsters because really? I was scared that they'd bite me. Um, and with these rats, I had to hand handle them. Um, there was a process called handling where you just had to sit and hold them in your bare hands for like 10 minutes a day to get them used to being handled. So, oh. so I conquered that fear. Um, awesome. And, uh, and that was a huge area of growth. Do you have pets now? I don't. You I'm travel really though, don't you? So you can't really. Sure, that's why. <laughs> that's why. It's because she travels, folks. That's it. Well, that no, that's very interesting. But I, it taught you a lot of lessons. And it and so do you feel like what you're doing now is kind of the softer side of science? It, it's absolutely, it's the same thing. I mean, that's, okay. you know, so our, our, meth, our interventions, what we call, you know, basically the, what we're implementing, the ideas that we're testing are, certainly less invasive than right, right. you know shoving a, a tube into yeah, your hippocampus let's not do that. <laughs> and tossing you in a tank but um, good luck people you know so what we're testing is different but the the methodology is exactly the same you know so the foundational this is exactly why I love behavioral science and why I think we're 
on this impending movement of this is the future of industry, that mm-hmm. business leaders need to start thinking like scientists and running controlled experiments because we are way too dependent on intuition and asking people for their kind of self-reported guesses. And worst of all, trying something in what we'd call a pilot test, but not having a control group and therefore not knowing if something worked. Right, right. You know, we have some really great examples of experiments we've run where the findings were surprising. They were not what we expected to find, you know, or um, only in the analyses were we able to peel out that there was an effect in both groups. Maybe sales were going up across the board for the whole industry. Yeah, yeah. So, so what matters is how much did they go up in the treatment group versus how much did they go up in the control group? That's, exactly. And so then it's that difference that you're looking at. And if you don't have that control group, you could miss that entirely and mistakenly think that the idea you're testing is what caused sales exactly. to go up. So that that is just a really basic foundational methodology of science that applies whether you're talking about a biological experiment with animals or with, you know, a social science experiment, which is more typical of what we'd be running. That is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. I am so happy that you came here today. Me too. That this has been fun. so interesting what you do. I love it. And so if people want to learn more about what you do, People Science is a good place mm-hmm. to, to learn people about science. what does this look mm-hmm. like, right? Very yeah, cool. Yeah, PeopleScience.com and we're on uh, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Very cool. Thank you, Charlotte. I Thank appreciate you, your time today. And everybody out there, uh, please listen to Mishmash, and we'll catch you next time. Bye. <laughs>